0: Let me pray, and then we'll see what Matthew has to say, all right? Father, this morning we come to you and we thank you very much for your spirit in us, for the opportunity to know you and to be known by you. We thank you that you are the God of joy and laughter, and so that you are, I I believe that, like, just like us parents love it when we see our kids having fun, um, Lord, we believe, I just believe that you love it when you see your children enjoying each other and having fun as well. So we're grateful that being in quote-unquote God's house does not stop us from enjoying each other and enjoying fun. This morning, though, we come to make much of you. We come to observe you, to look upon you, to listen to you and have you speak to our hearts so that we might know you more intimately, so we might know you better, so we might follow you more diligently. And Father, this morning, I think that um, the object of our attention is someone who is like that. May we model our lives. Likewise, Father, as um, we say, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in thy law. And today we look to you, speak to us. And it's in your great name we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right. I have a Christmas quiz for you. All right? Here we go. And this is the part where you, you talk, all right? You interact. Can you tell me the one person in the nativity story who is a key character but never says a word? All right, I hear the innkeeper. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Oh, there's the question. And he doesn't count. I knew, I knew this crowd over here would go there immediately, all right? Anyone? innkeeper, I hear a vote for the innkeeper. Joseph. Thank you very much, Gary. You don't expect to hear that kind of wisdom coming out of the back row all the time, but yes. Joseph, that's right. Joseph. You ever think about that? We read about Joseph in the story. He is a necessary part of the story, and yet he never says a word. There's never a recorded statement by Joseph in the Bible. That's right. There we go. Ding, 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 ding. All right. That's right, it's Joseph. What can you tell me about Joseph? He's a, He's a carpenter. And even that is not in the nativity story. Even that's not in the nativity story. That comes much later on in Matthew 13, where you know, the people in Nazareth are giving Christ a hard time about his miracles and about his, about his, his teaching, And their statement then, right then is when we learn, and even then, carpenters are loosely translated, but they say, is this not the carpenter's son? So even there, Joseph's not talking about himself, someone else is talking about him, and that word carpenter is really the word builder, and so somehow or another we came from builder to carpenter. So he was a builder, he was someone who worked with his hands in some fashion, and we know that about him. And because of that, because we know about Jewish customs at the time and all, the sons took on the trade of the fathers. And so, you know, that's why they call, you know, they, that's why they speak of Christ as a carpenter and stuff, all right? But beyond that, what else? Do you, can you tell me anything else you know about David? I mean, about Joseph. Righteous. He, that's what it says about him, right? What else can we say? He's from the house of David. That's right. He, in, in Matthew 1, 16... That very first chapter you're sitting in, probably right now, he was, it says that he was, a, it's the lineage is in there, the, the genealogy, and he is the house of David. We see that he comes from that way. We see in verse 18 of chapter 1 that he's betrothed to Mary, and as Cheryl said, in verse 19, it says that he was a righteous man. Now, I would, I'm not a writer, you know, I don't write stories and stuff, but I'm assuming that if you're writing a story about someone, you're building the character up more. But you know what? Actually, matter of fact is, they're not trying to attach you to this character, are they? They're going to attach your heart and your attention to another character in this story. And yet, Dave, and Joseph is necessary. There are, we learn more, really, about Joseph. There's the Wesleyan carpenter's son, a descendant of David, Matthew one sixteen, betrothed to Mary, righteous man, but what we learn most about Joseph is not by what we read about him, what he says, or what someone else says about him. Really what we learn most about him is by watching him. We learn the most about Joseph by his actions. By his actions. Let's start out with this. We know he's betrothed, right? So some of us might be familiar with, with, an, with Jewish Marriage customs at the time, but some of us might not be. So the, the betrothal, the marriage to become married, had three stages to it. Number one was a contract. And, this, was, and this, this is where the parents would set up the marriage. And so the parents would say, I've got a girl, you got a boy, you want to talk business? And they would set up a marriage. And it might be done years before the children were ever even really into marrying age. And because most girls were, were, were married at age 13 or betrothed at age 13 or 14, boys were typically a few years older. So they might be 16 or 17. And so a contract would be set up where there would be a marriage that would be fixed and it would be agreed upon. And then there would be a betrothal. And betrothal would be that it would be the period that says, from this date forward, these two are legally married. While they are not living with each other, There's no exchange, they're not like combining income, they're not sharing expenses, they're not together sexually, they're not together in the same house, yet they are legally married. Legally married. Even though they're not together. That's the patrol period. It might be as long as a year, typically was. And then would come the wedding ceremony. And that would be at the groom's choice and time, where he would go and he would Um, with his with his groomsmen and he would go and take the bride from her father's home and bring her to his father's home where they would be living and that's and then that the contract part of it there was something called a um, um, a mohar I'm not sure if I'm saying the right m-o-h-a-r but it was in, in, in it was basically a dowry and the reason why they exchanged a dowry was because every person was a contributing member of the family and so if you're, if you're in a family and you have a young woman in your family, she's doing something to contribute to the livelihood and the means of the family. And if you take her from the family, all of a sudden you've lost a worker. It's as simple as that. You've lost someone who's contributing to your home. And so that dowry that the groom's family would pay to the bride's family would help in some way recompense the loss of income for that young woman. And so she's leaving, the father, she's leaving her father's home, and she's being taken to his father's home. That's where they'll make their, lo- their, their, their home. And it is there where they'll come together, and it is there um, prior to a large, large, giant wedding feast that they'll consummate the marriage while everyone's waiting. Awkward. Yeah, but that is the custom. And then they'd come out for a large feast where everyone would participate for multiple days. Verse 18 says that Mary and Joseph were the betrothed to be married. And so there are some assumptions we can make right there. While they're not absolute, but looking at customs of the time, we can make some assumptions loosely said. Mary was probably 13 to 14 years old. Joseph was probably 16. We don't know how long they've been betrothed when... The Holy Spirit spoke to them when they had their dreams, and they found out that she was pregnant. We don't know where they were in the pregnancy, but the fact that she was pregnant and they had not consummated the relationship was bad news, really bad news. Keep in mind that Nazareth was a small village. One authority authority says that Nazareth could have been as large as 1,500 people. In his research, an archaeologist, researcher guy, he said the, the city was probably somewhere between 15 to 2,000 people. Later, in his research, and in his writings, and his, in his studies, he came back and he brought that number down. He said they were probably only may, maybe as many as 500. Actually, the number he said was 480. And I'm thinking like, like what is that number? 480, not 482. So, you know, 500. It's a small village. Now then, I come from a town of 12,000, and everybody knew my business. And if you come from a small town, you know, yeah, I, can, I can hear an amen out of you. Yeah, some of y'all do. Now, so then you come to a town of 500, and you know everybody knows your business. But it's not even that it's a small town and it's the nature of small communities. It's the nature of communal life in ancient Israel. Because there was none of this stuff like, I am my own man and I will do my thing. There was none of this stuff where I would choose my path and I would go my own way. Instead, what it was, was that the community had a great amount of say and input and influence on individuals' lives. The community was huge in its impact, was huge in its influence. It was huge in just the way you lived your life was very often influenced by those who lived around you. Family are non Family. It was the nature of community. And you still see many cultures who have a great, large communal influence on their members. Still. And so here she shows up. Betrothed. Legally married. Legally married. And pregnant. Joseph had three choices. He could expose Mary publicly. In this case, she could possibly, if someone wanted to pursue the law, the Mosaic law, absolutely, she could suffer stoning and death. Though that was rare in first century. But she definitely, absolutely, would have suffered the shame and the scorn of the community. She would be outed. The, the closest thing in our culture here that you can begin to relate to is what the Amish are like. Where you are outed, you are no longer one of us. And I know that there are some Jewish families that are that way as well. You are not one of us now. And it would be because of, of this sin that they're assuming she had committed by showing up pregnant. That was his first option. His second option was to grant her a private divorce, in which case Joseph only needed to hand her a written certificate in the presence of two witnesses that would be, consider it done. It would be less public. It would save her some of that scorn. She'd be sent away, perhaps. Then the third option would be to take her as his wife. To remain engaged until the child was born, and then they would consummate the marriage. But this is not where he was landing, was it? If you read the text. He had decided to give her some dignity, to have some compassion, to have mercy upon her, and in doing so, to give her a private divorce, let her go away quietly, not let this become a public scandal, because he was seeking to follow the law and be righteous himself. Immediately, we understand that he, did, he was a man of compassion. And we begin to see why verse 19 calls him a righteous man. He was having compassion on her. He cared for her dignity. Let's look at the texts that get, bring a little bit more light on Joseph. In Matthew 1, 20, we begin to see a series of four dreams. Matthew 1, 20. The first dream is the dream where, where finally Matthew is brought into the loop. Mary is pregnant; she knows about it. Everyone knows about it now. And Matthew, and in, in, in Matthew one twenty, there, Ma, uh, Joseph is trying to figure out what his actions should be. And in a dream, now you know what. Note this also: Mary gets an angel, Zachariah gets an angel, Joseph gets four dreams. This is the first of his dreams. And this dream here says, don't be afraid. Immediately, God sends an angel in a dream to begin to affirm this young man and says, don't be afraid. He says, Joseph, son of David, Mary is pregnant and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Take her as your wife. His name will be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Immediately in that passage, he says, it's a boy. Don't be afraid, but be encouraged because I'm in the midst of this. And then he's given instructions as what to do. Take her as your wife. That's the right thing to do. Don't be afraid of the law. Don't be afraid of the opinions. Don't be afraid of the backlash. Take her as your wife. And then name him. His name will be Jesus. And then the angel says, And he will save his people from their sins. I imagine, and based on what we read about Mary and about other family members, and even those who knew Jesus as his disciples, they had a hard time understanding what was built into that statement. And then if you look in verse 24 and 25, he did just that. He took Mary's wife, and then he named him as Jesus as instructed. The second dream... Verse 13, Herod is, desires to kill the child after the wise men come and he learns that there's a king of the Jews in the land. Herod decides to kill the child. A dream comes and he has another dream with another angel. And this time it says, take the child, go into Egypt where you'll be safe. And he gets up that night and takes the child and goes. Third dream, he's in Egypt keeping the child safe. Verse 19, and again, he's told, go home. And he did. He arrives in Israel But there is still fear that the child is in danger. And in a fourth dream, verse 22, another warning, go to Galilee. You'll be safe there. In Luke, Joseph gets no real press at all. No time or attention at all. In Luke, if you want to go there, you don't have to, but in Luke chapter 2, 4, it says that he takes Mary to Bethlehem for the census. And in chapter 2, verse 33, when they take the child for circumcision to the temple to have him uh, consecrated. There it says that Simeon comes out and prophesies over the child and it just says that Joseph was amazed at what was being said. That's it. That's all. We can pull from the text that's written by him to know anything about him. We know that Joseph is still in Jesus' life at the age of 12 Because in chapter 2, 41 through 52 is that instant where they go to the temple and then they leave the temple and Jesus stays behind. And it says that his mother, and it it talks about his mother and father. So we know that still at the age of 12 that Joseph was in Jesus' life. But after that, we have no more mention of him. We have nothing else to know about him. He's not mentioned at all at the crucifixion. He's not mentioned at all in the context of the disciples after his death or even before his death. And so most people assume that he was no longer alive. So what can we learn about his life? What can we take away from him? What is it that someone who has so little written about him can teach us? When I've thought about him, I've thought of Joseph as a minor member of of an ensemble cast. He has no speaking parts. He's written out of the script early and without any fanfare. You know, there's no cliffhanger on his story as to what happened to him next week. There's nothing like that. He's just gone. But consider this. Regardless of how minor or irrelevant he might seem to the storyline of Christ's birth, he was hand-chosen by God to fulfill that role and that function in bringing his son to earth. Hand chosen by God. He wasn't cruising Craigslist. He wasn't looking for Monsters.com for like father of God kind of job titles. There was nothing like that. He was doing his own thing and then all of a sudden the woman that he's engaged to turns up pregnant. The job thrust upon him. But God chose him. He was minding his own business. God must have known that he'd be perfect for Mary and perfect for Jesus. But having said that, he is no sinless saint. Let's be really clear about that. He is no sinless saint. He is not worthy of any type of special adoration, any type of special veneration, any type of special attention. No more so than Mary, Joseph, or or any other, you know, the donkey in the Old Testament. He is just a man. He was a sinful man, just like any one of us. But there were character traits about him. There were issues of his character that stood out and got God's attention. And based on that, God chose to use him. Based on that, God chose to insert him into the story of Christ coming to earth. There's nothing supernatural about him. There's no reason to think that he was anything that we should still continue to honor or venerate, pray to or pray for. He was just a man used by God. Ultimately, there was nothing about him but Character. There was no ability that he had. There was no following that he had. There was nothing special about him that got anyone's attention but God's. Because, really, the fact of the matter is that ultimately it's not ability that God wants. It's availability that God wants. It's the heart. It's the humility. It's the yieldedness that qualified him and qualifies us that gets God's attention any and every time. You know, you're familiar probably with this passage out of First Samuel. This is Saul's downfall here. He has gone out to fight a war. He was given specific instructions with what to do in that war, with what to do with the prisoners, with what to do with the animals, with what to do with all the booty that would be taken from it. He was given specific instructions, and he chose to just tweak it a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. And in that, this is what God had to say to him. Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. He's saying here, you want to sacrifice to me. You want to do a lot of big stuff for me. You want to make a big show about things. I'm not interested in big shows. I'm not interested in stuff you're going to do on the outside. I want to know what's inside. I want to know what you'll do with what I tell you. Will you obey me? Will you just obey me? Will you just do what I asked? Without fanfare, without bells, without whistles, just do what I ask. Even if you say you're doing it for me. That's where I think that Joseph fits the bill. That's why I think that Joseph, in his obedience, got God's attention. Now, what did it look like for Joseph to obey God? Keep in mind, you know, we talked about the communal part of living in Nazareth at that time, a small village. We hold in high regard being your own man, like I said. But it wasn't like that for him. Because of that communal nature, because of everyone knowing your business, because of everyone having some input, some influence, some interaction with you and with your family. All of a sudden, when you show up, with a pregnant, betrothed wife. All of a sudden, that public scorn, that public shame, that outing happens. To obey God was not something where he thought, you know what, if I obey God, he's going to make everything good for me. Is that not true? And I'll call you a liar to your face. Is not that not true that we think that if we obey God, he'll make it easy for us? Is it not true that we think that if we obey God, he's going to work it out in the end, so we'll be the winner? See, because that is very much the American mentality. Good guys always win. White White hats always win. If I'm on the right side of the argument, I'll win. And Joseph had no guarantee of that. So he begins to obey God, and in obeying God, immediately he's scorned. Immediately he's shamed. Immediately he's outed. In this community of people. Obeying God was not an easy thing. Obeying God cost him dearly. See, because the other part of the equation that we haven't talked about here is that everyone who, if you are any kind of craftsman, those people in your community are your customers as well. You are so interdependent, intertwined. And now all of a sudden, he is set outside of that community. Obeying God was not something that was easy for him. Obeying God was not something that was going to be easy for him. And it didn't look like it was going to end well for him. He didn't know what it meant to say that this baby is going to be Jesus and save his people from the sins. Somewhere in all that, is there something where it says, I'm going to be a winner in this, Lord? You know, think about this. In his obedience... Every time we read about he was given instruction, it says he got up and did. Even Mary said, had questions. Zachariah doubted. But Joseph, it reads, got up and obeyed. In each instance, he had instruction. He got up and obeyed. Joseph knew what it was going to cost him. To take this woman as his wife. What did God look for? What did God see in Joseph when he chose him? Well, I think that he saw a man that would not buckle to public opinion or to scorn. I think he knew that man's heart well enough to know that what he was going to put him through and how he would respond He knew beforehand how Joseph would respond. That there would always be a cloud over them, and that Joseph married a woman who had had sex outside of marriage and had broken her vow to her husband and shamed her mother and father, whose child would be illegit- illegitimate, and no one, quote unquote, who knew who the father was. You know, I think that we often have a high opinion of ourselves. We think, I mean, you, well, you hear it from us all the time. Well, if I'd seen him do that miracle, I sure would have followed. And so I think that we have a high opinion of ourselves and we think, you know what? I wouldn't bend to, I wouldn't bend to public opinion. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like that. But I just got to ask you something, and this is going to poke you right in the eye, but it's going to poke me in the eye too. Think about the last time you know you had an opportunity to someone, tell someone about Christ. And you didn't do it. you telling me it's because. You weren't worried. About what they would think of you. What they'd say about you. How they'd respond to you. Whether they'd like you when you got done or not. We've all experienced it. So we have all. Bent to the opinion of others. So, to say that we would be different than Joseph in this situation would be a little bit of false arrogance, wouldn't it? We know what it's like to fear the opinion of others. And God knew that this man would not bend, he needed a man who was selfless. What was about to come upon this young couple was going to be demanding. When Joseph took Mary as his wife, he gave up his own dignity, his own reputation in that community. He perhaps gave up all of his opportunity for income and revenue, for business, to taking care of this family. He was about to be his own. That was selfless. He did not try and retain his own reputation or his own dignity. He gave it up willingly. He took on the role of a father to a child that was not his own, whose mission was one that he didn't understand, and allowed that mission and that child to shape his life. He was selfless. He needed a man, and as I say, he needed a man who would be anonymous. In other words, he needed someone who would take full responsibility for caring and protecting the child and his mother, and all that was going to come with that, even though he didn't fully understand it, and be okay with, so, so to speak, a life behind the curtains that was off in the stages, the wings of the stage. Never center stage. He needed a man who was willing to step in and do what was asked of him without accolades, without press, but only sacrifice. He needed a man who was humble. Andrew Murray says that humility is nothing less than the loss of self in the vision that Christ is all. Let me say that for you again. Andrew Murray says, Humility is nothing less than the loss of self in the vision that Christ is all. Now, I don't think that Joseph had a sense of who this baby was. I think he had a sense of who God was. And that sense was strong enough that he chose to obey him regardless of what he understood, and as we see in the story, regardless of what it was going to cost him. He chose to obey. And that meant humility, that meant humiliation for him. And then finally, what we've already alluded to, we've already spoke about, he needed a man who would be obedient. More than anything else we see about Joseph in the text was that he got up and went, his obedience. Mary questioned, Zechariah doubted, Joseph listened and obeyed. It is not uncommon for me to have someone from time to time come and say, I really would like to be in the ministry. What seminary should I go to? And as I was thinking through this passage, i got to say, I've never said, well, the thing you need to do to prepare yourself for ministry is learn how to obey. I've never said that. I've never said the thing you need to do to be able to go into ministry is be prepared to be anonymous or to be humiliated or to be humble. Be prepared to to be selfless, to give up your reputation. Be prepared to give up your dignity because you want to be used by God. Be prepared to have the public opinion, the scorn and the shame of a few or dozens or hundreds just rain down on you like a thunderstorm. You know, you think about it, some of these guys, there are are dozens of websites set up to tell us why Rick Warren is from the devil. Now, I don't care whether you agree with him or not. The man stands tall. He stands firm in the face of all kinds of opinion, scorn, and so many others do as well. So many others do as well. I've never said to a young man or a young woman who wanted to go into ministry, says, these are the kind of things you need to work on. Seminary, seminary, seminary will come. Seminary will come. It doesn't qualify you. It just educates you. Two different things completely. In God's economy, he deals with His currency is diligent faithfulness, obedience, and selflessness. Joseph didn't say anything that we are, is recorded in the text, but his actions spoke volumes to those who will listen. His actions gave an example to those who want to follow, who want to be used by God. And so, now then, a moment—I just was talking about like people who want to go into ministry, but you know, here at Crossing, we don't talk like that necessarily. There's nothing wrong with going into full-time ministry, getting educated and stuff like that. But what we say here at Crossing is that every member is a minister. That our belief is that every member should be equipped to go themselves and to serve wherever God has sent them. And more often than not, we believe that you're sent to a relationship more than you're sent to a place. And so God has put you in relationships on purpose, whether you like it or not. He sent you there to that person. And he's asked you to step into that and to represent Christ in that relationship and in that environment. So the the issue is not whether or not you want to go into full-time ministry. The issue is, do you want God to use you where he has sent you, to whom he has sent you to, do you want God to use you there? Because the ingredients and the requirements are no different than the Father of Jesus than they are for you. Sacking groceries at Giant or signing paychecks at a company or anything else. Those apply to you. Are you willing to stand up to public opinion and scorn? Let me just tell you something. This past week, oh man, Yeah, we'll do it. All right, this past week gave you a perfect example of what it means to say, this is what I believe. This is what I believe Scripture teaches. This week gave you a perfect example of that. You will face scorn. Don't think so? You just step out and try and see. You will face shame. You will be shouted down. You'll be told you're a bigot. You'll be told you're narrow-minded. You'll be told that God loves everyone, not just you. Just step out and try it. Just step out and try it. If you want to serve in your office complex, in your dormitory, in your school hallway, then meaning selfless is absolutely a, problem, a, a requisite. Being anonymous, being humble is a requisite and being obedient is a requisite because more than likely, God is going to call you to somebody that you're like going, that's not the person I had. He's not even on my list, Lord. Why him? Why her? Why there? Will you go? Will you be obedient? If you want to be used by God, if you want to have impact, these four ingredients are something that he's calling to all of us. To each and every one of us. And so Joseph, while he's not the leading candidate, not the star of the story, his actions give us a great deal of example to follow. Let's pray. Father, um, we come to you today and we acknowledge that, um, I acknowledge, I'll speak for myself, Lord, that uh, it matters far too much what people think. Lord, uh, I'm not selfless. I'm full of all about me. And uh, I'm interested in not being anonymous. And I'm I'm not that interested in obeying at all. I want my way when I want my way. And I want it right then. I confess that, Lord. And I don't think that I'm stepping out when I say I confess it for us as a people as well. Lord, we want to be, I think, most of us here, want to be like you, want to know you intimately and deeply and want to be able to say that we see God using us in places we never dreamed of, places we never thought would be used, people we never thought would be used by, be in relationships with people we would never choose, but you chose them for us because you are intent on sending people who represent you to places and people who need you. Father, may we find ourselves in this coming new year to be less sensitive to the opinions of others, to be more selfless, more humble, and absolutely more obedient. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and for your compassion and for your great deep grace when we're not and how you eagerly accept us back. May we not abuse that, but may we really appreciate it. And in that in itself, he changed people as well. Thank you for this quiet man, Joseph, for his humility, for his obedience, and its model to each and every one of us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks a lot for being here. Have a good week this week. Thank you for being here if you're a guest. We're glad to have you. If, um, uh, we'd love, uh, have a great day, have a great day, have a great day.